Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Could be my favorite word of the day of all time, the nothing personal word of the day. It's bells, and here's what happened. Jerry Jones hired Mike McCarthy. We've talked about it. The new coach, he coached the Packers to a Super Bowl. So they did a press conference, and of course, the press conference, you had Jerry Jones sitting there looking completely like he was in rigor mortis. You had Mike McCarthy in a suit looking like a block of concrete, sort of just sitting there very strongly and widely. And the question was asked, how did you know Jerry Jones, how did you know that Mike McCarthy was your guy? And Jerry Jones said, well, when I was talking to Mike, I heard bells. Can't you picture like birds sort of tweeting and whispering through the air? Can't you picture how love was in the air during their sleepover? Picture them by the fireplace, cozied up in their PJs. Maybe they're making s'mores and they've got the marshmallow in the fire And they look in each other's eyes and they say, 30 million bucks. Yes, I love you too, Philip Morris. I mean, Jerry Jones. Bells. Jerry heard bells bless his heart. Aaron Rodgers had a comment about it. Very complicated relationship. When you're a uh, star quarterback and you've won a Super Bowl, you have a complicated relationship with your coach. That happens in every sport. Superstars and managers, superstars and coaches, superstars and GMs, superstars and owners, presidents. It's very delicate. There comes a time in a player's career when they believe that they are the story. They are the glue. They are the keystone. Keystone. Mr. Yates, Horace Mann, I know what a keystone is. Aaron Rodgers suffers from that in Green Bay. He's still playing. He's in the uh, divisional playoff round this weekend, home game. I would say that he is the story of the Green Bay Packers, except he used to be Brett Favre. What about Vince Lombardi? Meaning there'll be someone else after Aaron Rodgers, too. But Aaron Rodgers may suffer from the indispensable person syndrome, and that's fine. So he couldn't help himself but comment. And I want to say what he said and then what he didn't say that he really was saying. When asked about McCarthy, he said, We've had a lot of success down there. And by there, he's talking about Dallas. He's actually talking about AT&T Stadium. Just coincidentally, that's where the Packers won a Super Bowl. Can you imagine that Mike McCarthy likes Dallas because he associates the stadium with coaching the Packers to a Super Bowl victory? Did he, like, tour the neighborhoods for his family? Did he look at the transportation situation? Has he flown through DFW ever? I guess he won a Super Bowl, so that means he likes it. So we've had a lot of success down there, and Rogers said, and I think that was probably one of the reasons McCarthy took the job. We obviously won the Super Bowl there. We won some big games down there over the years, so I'm not surprised that Jerry Jones had an infatuation with Mike because we've had some really good performances. And then he continues, Aaron Rodgers does. I thought maybe he, meaning Mike McCarthy, would go somewhere where he maybe could have some GM opportunity as well. But I'm happy for him. I sent him a text, and he sent me a text back. I don't know if you know this, but when you text with someone... That's not speaking to them. 
There are people who say when you text, yeah, did you speak to him yesterday? Yes, I did. And they're saying they just texted. But that's not speaking. That's fingering, right? With your fingers. I want your tongue, your mouth, words. So it's interesting that Aaron Rodgers wouldn't call Mike McCarthy. It's interesting why Mike McCarthy was fired by the Packers in the middle of a season. I think we know exactly what happened there. Power play Aaron Rodgers. one nothing Aaron. And then he talks in this quote, though, about how Jerry Jones would have an infatuation with Mike McCarthy because of the Green Bay success in Dallas. That's the equivalent of me saying with the Marlins that because the Braves always beat us, when it's time to hire a new manager, we want to hire the manager of the Braves. Or when the Braves always beat us and we need a new GM, we're going to take the GM of the Braves. It's not relevant at all. We don't look at what the record is against a team who the executive is who we're interviewing or the manager. We're looking at the quality of the individual. We're looking at what fits what we want and what we're trying to do. Very bizarre to me that Aaron Rodgers would say that he believes that the marriage between McCarthy and Jerry Jones is based on an infatuation. I'm not talking about the sleepover. I'm not talking about bells, our word of the day. I'm talking about weird that he would say it's an infatuation. And then he says, I thought Mike McCarthy would want to be a GM. Here's what Aaron Rodgers is saying, that Mike McCarthy wanted more power over personnel moves in Green Bay than he had. Aaron Rodgers got in the way of those personnel moves, and Aaron Rodgers won the struggle and power play between them. So he figured Mike McCarthy would leave and try to get both positions the way, let's say, a Bill Parcells does did when he had an opportunity to be both the GM and a coach. I can't imagine how. We know Jerry Jones is the GM of Dallas, so we know very well that Mike McCarthy will have zero say in the players. Zero. As a matter of fact, we heard Jerry Jones specifically say during the course of the season, I choose the players. I make every decision. I do not consult Jason Garrett. I do not consult the offensive coordinator, the defensive coordinator. I don't consult my wife and kids. I make every decision. So why would Mike McCarthy, who looked for power in Green Bay, why would he agree? Was he under some sort of like hypnotic spell during the sleepover? Maybe Mike McCarthy heard the same bells. And my guess is those bells had a 30 on them. Words coming out today. Uh, it's sort of a big deal. This is going to be, we got a lot of sensitive stuff to talk about during today's show. And uh, when you're listening to this show, I appreciate you download it, you subscribe, you're watching it wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you rate and review it, please. Five stars matters. If you have any questions, please ask them. I'll answer on the review. But I like talking about topics that I think matter to you as the audience, and they also matter to me. Something happened with John Beeline yesterday. John Beeline is the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. John Beeline is the former Michigan coach who received a five-year deal uh, to coach the Cavaliers, five or six years, think five. He's in year one is all that matters. The Cavaliers have had major problems. We talked about Kevin Love the last two days. So John Beeline is in Detroit. John Beeline has a film session, very normal. What you do in the NBA, the day of a game at the team hotel, when the traveling secretary for in baseball or basketball, when you're choosing a hotel, you're making a contract with that hotel. So every time you go into that city, you get the same hotel. The president gets the same suite. The GM gets the same suite. Certain players who get upgraded rooms know what suite they're going to be in. 
That's the job of the traveling secretary. So in this Detroit hotel, any NBA hotel, there's a room where they do a film session. They do, it's not a walkthrough, there's no court, but it's a room where there's film set up. They keep it secure 24 hours a day, seven days a week while the team is in that particular city. So John Beeline was doing a film session. He's going through and he is criticizing the Cavaliers and their previous game. And he says during the film session that his view is that the players are acting like a bunch of thugs. And then he moves on to the rest of his film session, walks out of the room. It turns out that the players were extremely offended by the use of the word thugs, that the staff was aghast that Beeline would use the word thug. And then he didn't even realize it. So what happened after the film session is his staff came up to him and said, listen, you just called your players thugs. Are you aware of the implications of that? Keep in mind, John Beeline is 66 years old and white. Just keep that to the side as you're listening to this story. So John Beeline is not aware of what happened. He then gets told the seriousness of using that word incorrectly. He immediately goes into apology mode. But in sports, that doesn't work very well any longer. And the reason it doesn't is that you have to apologize to people in the right order, and you have to apologize in a way that is sincere and believable both individually to the person and to the team, but also in the social media world. That never used to be a thing where when you're running a team, you have to think about it from a social media standpoint as well as an internal operational standpoint. For anyone who is 66 years old, you don't know what I mean. But if you're running a company, no matter what your age is, you recognize the power of social media is not is a force to be reckoned with, not to be believed. So Beeline makes an apology, decides to apologize to each player one at a time. The only time we'd ever make a manager apologize to a player individually is if that manager did something so outrageous, so offensive, that frankly, he would be in line to get fired. So the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers gets word of this, immediately sends his GM to Detroit where he was not traveling with the team. Kobe Altman is the GM. And I've been in a position where I've been called when Ramon Castro, a former catcher of ours, got uh, charged and arrested with rape. I had to fly immediately to Pittsburgh, literally got on a plane, got a call, got on a plane to deal with that and deal with the team. The only time that you travel to be with your team when you weren't supposed to be with your team is when there's a problem, when there is a championship to be won, but you'd be with the team, when there's some sort of monumental achievement like Ichiro's 3,000th hit where you fly in to try to see that, or when one of your players gets arrested. Those are really the only situations that you'd ever need to go join your team at the owner's bequest. Bequest? Behalf. So, Kobe Altman arrives. Beeline has to apologize to Altman. Then he apologizes to the players. The problem is the story didn't end there. So my question for you all as you're listening to this and whatever demographic you are, and judging by my viewership and listenership, it's a pretty mixed demographic. And I appreciate that. And I'm not saying that my view is the right one. I'm merely saying that if John Beeline said that he meant to say slug, his story that he's sticking to is he didn't mean to say thug. He meant to say slug. I want to dive into this. When you call someone a slug, I like the word slug, sloth, slovenly. I've spoken to players about that. You guys look like slugs. You look like sloths. You look terrible. 
You look slow to the ball. You look like you didn't care. Often it's just good pitching that makes you look that way, or maybe it's being out too late that makes you look that way. But I get it when you're looking at your players and saying, listen, I don't like the energy. That is a synonym for I don't like your energy level. Why would he tell his players that they look like thugs? Thugs, as you remember back in the day, the Detroit Pistons, the bad boys, could we call them thugs? Bill Lambeer, Dennis Rodman, Rick Mahorn, the Knicks under Pat Riley, Charles Oakley, Anthony Mason, Patrick Ewing, John Starks. What word would we use to describe them? Well, it depends what they're doing. When Pat Riley tells Charles Oakley and says the rules for the Knicks, no layups. That's the rule. You stop a player no matter what. You saw what Jimmy Butler did last night. If you didn't, go on YouTube. Check it out. Jimmy Butler gets wrapped. There's a fight. It's a whole Megillah. It's a major thing. Jimmy Butler circling the Pacers the next time the Heat play the Pacers. Give me a break, Jimmy. Go play and keep your team playing well. It's not a big deal. You got wrapped up. No layups. That doesn't make a player a thug. What would make a player a thug? I can't think of it. A cheap shot? Does a cheap shot do it? Is it possible that thug is a completely racially based word? And that's why the players were offended that they thought that Beeline was referring to them because of race and use that word. All of these things are on the table. All of these things are possible. What is it that you would have the coach do? He came out and apologized. He said he was trying to use the word slug. My guess is he was. That is a word that is descriptive when you're looking at game tape. Thug is unlikely a descriptive word. He could have misused the word thug. He, made, he didn't, claims he didn't even remember saying thug. What do you do from here if you're Cleveland? You have got to come out now, today, and either support Beeline or get rid of Beeline. This is now the fourth day in a row. We are talking about the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cleveland Cavaliers are irrelevant. They should not make the show ever. Never trend. They're not going to play an important game this entire season. They have no one interesting on the entire team. LeBron's gone. It's done. Yet we find a way to talk about them negatively between Kevin Love and now John Beeline. It's going to be very interesting what they do. You stand up and you support your coach or you fire your coach. You're one of five. That's a huge, huge pill to swallow. I do not think they'll do it. I believe that Beeline's excuse is right, and there were absolutely no, no racial tones. David Tepper is another owner who we've talked about several times. He's, uh, he's one of my faves, the rich guy, the rich hedge fund guy who thinks that he can own a team. Believe me, it's hard. I'm not saying you can't do it, but you need some practice. So we hired a new uh, uh, coach, and uh, he has a quarterback. Have you ever heard of Cam Newton? Cam Newton supposed to be great, right? Something happened to Cam Newton. Got hurt. So they did a press conference. They introduced the new coach. We talked about it. The guy from Baylor. We saw him, Mike Rule. He brought his wife, his kids, his little son, put on a tie. What, 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 Coca? Say it much more clearly when you're correcting me. Is it it's Matt Rule? It's Matt, not Mike. Thank you. So Matt Rule goes to Carolina, and they do a press conference. But the question in the press conference, one of the major ones, was about Cam Newton. Cam Newton, superstar, quarterback, injured. What is the future of Cam Newton? This is when the owner should never talk. 
Instead, David Tepper did speak because he doesn't realize yet that as a new owner and as a hedge fund billionaire, it doesn't mean that he is any good at PR or any good at actually articulating a thought. So this is what David Tepper said. I want to decode it for you. Every player that buys into this, again, horrible grammar. It's who. Every player, I'm going to fix his grammar when I read this to you. Every player who buys into this, the more they buy into this, the more things can work. And that's what we're going to need here is buy-in from people, okay? If we can get that kind of buy-in sooner rather than later, no matter what the personnel is, that's a fragment. We will try to use our personnel to the best possible advantage, whoever that personnel is. David, that is absolute horse hockey. I don't even get what you're saying and neither do you. Come out and say it. We don't know if Cam Newton is the guy for us. We don't believe that he will be the quarterback. I'm going to let Matt Rule and the GM decide, but I'm going to be involved because I'm an owner and I want to be involved. I have to take a look and see how much money I can save by Cam Newton not coming back, by releasing Cam Newton, by trading Cam Newton. I don't believe that he has the ability to be the quarterback that we need to try to turn around a team that obviously is not performing up to its capabilities, which is why we had to make a coaching change in the first place. What's wrong with saying that, David? Just stand, take the microphone. Why would you speak in tongues like David Byrne when your name is David Tepper? David Byrne, talking heads. It's disappointing what Tepper did. I really want owners. I, listen, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep asking owners. Just come out and be honest. Cam Newton can take it. Just say you're moving on. Next on my hit parade today, bothering me, because I picture myself in the league offices all the time. So picture yourself as the NFL commissioner or as the head of business in the NFL. We've talked about concussions. It's a big deal. A lot of money at stake, a lot of lawsuits. We saw what happened to Carson Wentz when the 9-7 and seven Eagles, the winners of the pathetic NFC East, where 75% of the teams have undergone coaching changes this offseason. Yet the Eagles win the division and host a playoff game and lose to the Seahawks with a 9-7 and seven record, might I add. Carson Wentz gets hit, driven to the ground, hits his head, and basically is concussed and is out of the game. So they had a backup quarterback, a 40-year-old named Josh McGowan, who McCowan, who had played for myriad teams, puts the M in mediocre, but basically has been able to stick around for a very long time. Although I think he was out of the league, and he may have even been teaching when he was called to be the backup quarterback. That's right, Colin. He was teaching, and he was still called to be the backup quarterback. And he did a fine job. But Doug Peterson was asked during the end-of-season media availability about the Carson Wentz hit because it's been a subject of great scrutiny. Could, was it an illegal hit? Is it a hit that should have been penalized? Is it a hit that we have an opportunity to change when we look at the rules of the NFL? And what what... Doug Peterson said, quote, this is an unfortunate part of the game. It was unfortunate, and it's a part of the game. Oh, my God, Doug, thank you. Thank you for being honest. It's exactly a part of the game. It is unfortunate that people get hit. It's unfortunate that we watch and watch the violent collisions, and we love it, and we gamble on the games, and we play fantasy. We've created a multi-billion-dollar business, but of course it's a part of the game. But in, within the offices of the NFL, they've got a problem. They've got to make people believe, both lawyers, salespeople, sponsors, and partners, 
that it's not a part of the game. They have to make sure, the NFL has to make sure that no one believes that's just the way the league is, that that's a part of the game. The NFL has been fighting that, so what do they do? They see Carson Wentz's comment, uh, they see Doug Peterson's comment about Carson Wentz, about the hit. They immediately do three things. One, they're on the phone to their biggest partners. That is their TV partners. And they're talking about how to deal with this information. If you think that you watch CBS or Fox or ESPN, and if you think the NFL does not speak to their networks about what they want the networks to talk about, what they don't want the networks to talk about, then I've got another thing coming to you. Like maybe the Brooklyn Bridge. There is constant contact between teams and television partners. We manufacture Everything that is said, we know it. When you're part of a league, there's no story that's a surprise. There's no take that's a surprise. That's why people like me get in trouble when we do takes on CBS that go against what the NFL wants. And then I get a call from the higher-ups at CBS, and you know what I say? Then take the mic away. Turn me off. Because I'm going to keep giving it to you straight. And what's straight is that the league has a problem with violence. The league has a problem because we're buying violence. CBS, ESPN, Fox are selling the violence. And they're selling it because sponsors are buying it. So either we acknowledge it's a part of the game and we pay money into a fund to take care of players who don't recognize their own toes 10 years out of the league, or worse yet, are dead prematurely because they've been concussed so many times. Either that's a cost of doing business or we do something about it. But what we can't do is put our head in the sand and just say, hey, we're going to pretend that we don't believe it's a part of the game. We're going to throw a little bit of money at it and we're not going to let networks talk about it. Well, nothing personal. You can bet we're going to talk about it because that's a big, big business issue. I like you, Doug Peterson, for doing it. All right, we got a review. I had a night last night. My God. So I had to watch The Lighthouse. Robert Pattinson, do you know that name from Twilight? The guy who was dating Kristen Stewart. And they were the cause of so much attention. So many girls and boys were in love with him. What about Willem Dafoe, one of the great actors of our generation? They got together in a movie called The Lighthouse. It's about two guys in the 1890s who have to become lighthouse attendants. And they're alone on a rock. And they're speaking in a language which is English, which it takes a while to understand. It's like watching Snatch on steroids. It takes 20 minutes to understand, and then it's still hard. Like you keep turning. Do you ever do this when you can't understand a movie and you turn the volume up thinking that'll help? Or you cup your ear thinking you're not listening? Or you have to re-listen to a certain line thinking you'll get it a second time? Well, the first half hour of Lighthouse is like that because you're not used to the accents. But what I'll tell you is, it is a tour de force, a performance of epic proportions for these two actors, both of whom could get nominated for Oscars. It is a dark movie. It's in black and white, but it's really color. It's not even in widescreen. I'm so spoiled when I watch a movie on a big screen that I want it to cover the entire screen. This is shown in a square. It's supposed to look like the, when TV first started. It's supposed to look dark. It's got sounds, the sound, the cinematography. It's eerie. It's awful. It's strange. It's weird. It's wonderful. It's bizarre. It is what a movie by Robert Eggers following up on his movie called The Witch. 
which was cray-cray to begin with and more horror than I'd like to ever see. So The Lighthouse is not a horror movie, but it's a tragedy. It's not Shakespearean. It's sort of new world tragedy of two men. I can't tell you to watch it because wait for one of them to be nominated. If there's an Oscar nomination, then watch it. If not, pass on it because it was two nights in a row now that I couldn't go right to sleep after the movie because you're looking and listening to The Lighthouse and it stays with you for a couple of hours. Okay. So you want to talk to Samson. It's okay. So you want to talk to me. At David P. Samson, give me a DM. Do you want to talk to me? Give me a topic. Ask me anything and I'll answer. I'll try to answer on DM or put it on the show. We had one of our most interesting requests, and this came from Germany, which means that obviously I appreciate everyone listening from all over the world. The power of the internet is phenomenal. Thank you for the follows and for the subscribing rating. So someone in Germany wanted to know, and I, I don't know whether he is an expat or she, or because on Twitter, how do you actually ever know, right? It's one big catfish. Every day I say to Coca, the producer, look, look at this new follower. Look at how awesome he is or she is. And he'll laugh at me because it's a stock photo, which means that I'm actually paying attention to someone who's in the middle of a frame. So anyway... From Germany, the question is, do you, I think there will be a strike in Major League Baseball? Interesting. We're off season. Why did that catch my attention? Why did I want to talk about it today? Because how sad it is that we are 40 days away, maybe fewer, under 40 from spring training. And in Germany, where we're trying to build the sport, we were thinking of having games in Germany, actually, regular season games before they were moved to London. Germany was on the list. And the question is about a strike. What he's referring to is the collective bargain agreement, with, which runs out at the end of 2021. So no matter what happens, we've got baseball for 2020 and for 2021. Two straight seasons of uninterrupted, no labor stoppage baseball. And when you asked me whether or not there would be a strike, I couldn't help but wonder whether you were asking from a union perspective or whether you were asking about simply a work stoppage. So I want to teach the difference between a work stoppage, a strike, and a lockout. A work stoppage is the result of a strike or a lockout. A strike is when a management does not let employees come to work. That's a lockout. A strike is when the employees tell management, we're not going to work. So a strike is initiated by the employee, who in this case would be the player. A lockout is initiated by the team, in this case the commissioner's office, with a vote of 75% of the 30 teams. <clears throat> there are strategies in place when in labor law when you're doing collective bargaining. Collective bargaining is what you have to do by law. It's when management and players, the union who represents the players, a negotiating crew who represents the owners, they get together, they negotiate points, they negotiate money, Lots of money issues, lots of quality of life issues, if you will, for the players. If you don't negotiate in good faith, you're in violation of the national labor standards. So you have to negotiate in good faith. If you cannot come up with a deal that is reasonable and that will be voted on by both the players and the owners, then you've got a problem. There's three things that can happen. The players can strike, the owners can lock out, or you can agree to play, continue play past the expiration 
of the current collective bargaining agreement under the terms of the existing collective bargaining agreement. What that means is that in 2022, when baseball starts, if there's still no agreement and there's no strike, no lockout, there still could be baseball. My prediction is that's not going to happen, actually. I think there will be baseball in 22, and I think there will be a labor agreement. The reason I think that is the following. In the old days when there were lots of strikes in baseball, back in the 80s, 90s when the World Series was, do you know there was no World Series in 1994? Many of you are too young to remember. The World Series was canceled. Can you imagine in the middle of a season, the season stops, game over, cancel. What am I going to do in October? So I don't believe that either side can afford a work stoppage, which means the players won't strike, the owners won't lock out. But until then, they're each going to pretend they are. And how do you pretend that you're willing to do a lockout or a strike? You release through the media leaks in a very organized manner talking about the following things. From an owner's perspective, I'm leaking the following. One, we are united. Two, we have saved up a ton of money. We have gone to banks for lines of credit. We have a strike work stoppage fund. So we are absolutely liquid that we will continue to pay our bills during the course of a lockout. The third thing we say as owners, we do not believe the current system is fair and there are changes that need to be made. All of those are called posturing. Players are doing the same thing on their side. They're saying free agency is not fair. The young players aren't getting paid enough. We believe that the qualifying offer, which is something that gets attached to a player, is like stops them from getting from signing long-term deals. We've seen it with players every year. We may see it again this year with Keiko last year. We may see it with Marcelo Zuna or Nick Castellanos this year. Wait to see. Players come out and say, we have put away money. We are fine. We will make sure that if we miss paychecks that we can afford to live the life that we're used to living. So the players leak that, the owners leak what I said earlier, but here's the problem. We're all lying. Every side's lying. Let me tell you why we're lying on the ownership side. Yes, we've gotten the money together because we go to a bank and get a line of credit, which means we can draw that line of credit whenever we need to in order to pay bills. Yes, we've agreed to cut expenses, which means firing employees or putting them on leave if there's a work stoppage. You don't need stadium, empl- stadium workers or ushers. If there's no spring training, you don't need to run your spring training facility. So there are ways to cut expenses, but we have to submit a plan of how we submit our expenses. We had to do before the last collective bargaining agreement, we had to meet with MLB and give them an entire financial plan of how we would survive a work stoppage. I've never wasted more time in my life. Basically, I went to my CFO. I said, listen, we've got to do this. There's 29 spreadsheets here. It's a crock of crap. Tell them we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to fire X, Y, and Z. We're going to cut expenses Y, Z, and A. Do you think for one minute that I'm going to stop paying an employee who makes $62,000 a year, fire him to save ten grand for an owner while rich players and rich owners get richer and richer because of a work stoppage? Not going to do it. I got to tell baseball I'm doing it. I got to show them how I'm cutting expenses. We have, and the reason is we have to show the players that we're ready. Meanwhile, the players are saying they're saving their money for a rainy day. 
Well, the players who make the minimum, which at the time is $300,000, now it's $550,000, they only get paid from April to September. So when players say to us, hey, we're fine, we've saved money, we know they're full of it. Why? Because it doesn't hurt them till they miss paychecks. One thing I wanted to do as president is I wanted to pay players 12 months a year because I wanted players to get hurt when they would miss paychecks. But if you lock out a player in October, November, after the World Series of 21, they could care less. It doesn't, you don't get any leverage in the negotiation. Miss spring training, the players don't care. They don't like spring training. Now, you start missing games two weeks after April 1st, that's when the rubber starts hitting the road. So for me, it is a long-term wait to see. You're going to see posturing. You're going to see panic. You're going to see members of the media writing articles upon articles. Will there be a work stoppage? Will it be a strike? Will it be a lockout? Will there be a work stoppage period? Who's going to win? Who's more upset? I love it. If it's CBS writers, read it. If it's anybody else, read it. It's fine. It's better than wasting your time. But read it with knowledge. The knowledge I'm giving you which is don't panic until I tell you to panic. And we'll be here in 2022, the end of 2021, and I'll let you know when it's time to panic that you're going to lose baseball. But my friend in Germany, I do not believe there will be a strike. I do not believe that you have anything at all to worry about. Did you see, speaking of baseball, um, so I've always been a fan of uh, criminal uh, charges, right? I always want to be district attorney. I wanted to, when people break the law, I want them to go to jail. Regardless, man, woman, child, doesn't matter. You break a law, a bad law, like a violent law. I'm not talking about like a white collar crime. I'm talking about a crime of violence. I always thought that what we used in baseball, that is actually a violent, that is a weapon. A bat is a weapon. In hockey, a stick is a weapon. In football, a helmet is a weapon. I know you're listening. What happened last night in Venezuela brought back absolute nightmares for me. We have a video of a brawl in Venezuela that is something that should never happen. So first, a player got hit by a pitch, which is fine. Players get hit by pitches all the time. It's a message. There's sort of the bench is clear, and it's the normal, what are you doing? Everyone shrugging their shoulders. Not a big deal. No problem. It's a 13-to-1 game. This is normal. This happens in MLB in the U.S. around the world. But then what happened is something worse. The next pitch hit the next guy, and the batter, Alex Romero, took his bat and swung his bat at the catcher. He turned around and assaulted his catcher. That made the benches clear. That created a huge brawl that involved punches. It involved more than just pushing and shoving. So the hitter, and I want to make sure that you have his name, Alex Romero got a cup of coffee with the Diamondbacks 10 years ago. He's a nothing, a scrub. He never made it. He actually took his bat and swung it at the catcher. Number one, it's a crime. Number two, one of the things I do not like about Venezuela, and there are a lot of really good players from Venezuela. I had the best of all time, Miguel Cabrera, of all time. Venezuela is a problem because, one, it's politically insecure. It's dangerous. There are kidnappings. Every mutton could done a shtick. You have to be worried when you send people to Venezuela that they're not going to come back. 
When I ran the Marlins, I did not allow people to go to Venezuela. We shut Venezuela down. No scouts, no academy, no nothing. Finished. Why? Because we could not take the chance that any of our assets would get hurt. Our assets involved players. They involved scouts. Any individual who worked for us, I did not want to get hurt. Why is it that Alex Romero thought that it would be okay to use his bat as a stick in Venezuela? Do you think he would get away with that, doing that in the United States today? Well, if he did that today, he would be charged. And I'm hoping that he gets charged. I'm just not convinced he will. How do we fix the Venezuela issue? What do we tell players? Do you know that the way it works in Venezuela, there's Venezuela Winter Leagues. That's the league where this brawl took place. And Venezuelan players are very popular back home. It doesn't make them safe. It makes them targets. But when they go back home, they need to go with security. They need to live behind gates. They need to make sure that they are safe, even when they try to make sure they're not always safe. Look at David Ortiz in the Dominican Republic, where we'll talk about another moment. So what we had to do when we were trying to get baseball players out of Venezuela is there's only a certain number of visas we're allowed to have to get players out of Venezuela into the Dominican Republic and then into the United States. You'd be shocked at the amount of time that we had to spend securing visas and working with Washington. Doesn't matter the president, whether it's Trump or Obama or Bush or Clinton, it doesn't matter. You're working with the president and the in Washington, D.C., and the House and the Senate trying to figure out how to get players out of Venezuela. Why is it that it's such a hotbed? It's something that I've asked people for 18 years. Because from a math standpoint, it makes no sense. And I've heard all the arguments. Let, why do so many more baseball players come from Florida and California? Well, because the weather's nicer. You can play baseball 12 months a year. So if you're good, you're going to want to move there and go to an academy or go try to play 12 months a year. I get it. In Venezuela, the Dominican, and Cuba, from a percentage standpoint, there's way more professional baseball players who come out of these countries as a percentage of both the population and as a percentage of Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball players. Is it because they're taught differently? Is it because they're taught better? Is it, is it genetics? What would be the reason that we need to scout so badly in Venezuela? What would be the reason that I would say no to scouting there when I know that I am turning my back on players who can help us win games? How hard a decision is that for me to make? Impossibly brutal. Because it's as though you know where you can mine gold, but you can't because you're afraid of getting shot in the back in the Wild West. So you let the gold just stay there. Or you figure out a way to get the gold out under the cover of night. That's the smuggling of Cuban players. Or you figure out a way to get the players in a safe atmosphere. That's the academies in the Dominican Republic. In Venezuela, it is almost impossible to make it safe for your players or your staff. We've tried as Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office individual teams to make changes. We've tried to up security. We've tried to up education. All the different things we've done, not one of them has worked. Of course, you'll read differently and you'll hear differently from baseball. What you'll hear is everything's much better. We're taking steps in the Dominican Republic to make things safer for our employees. We're making sure that no one's lying about their age. Why do players lie about their age in Venezuela or Dominican? Because they want to get more money so they can get out. It's always about getting more money, a bigger signing bonus. 
The brawl last night was just another example why we have to be so careful when we're doing business in Venezuela. And if I were still with the Marlins today, I'm still not doing business there. What's going on there with this type of brawl, that is not the problem. That is symptomatic of what's going on outside the ballpark, which is a much, much bigger issue. Okay, I want to, uh, I want to give you my pick of the day. And uh, I'm 0-2-1 in 2020. I'm so annoyed with Jokic beating out Luka. Last second shot, they won by one. I, I, I'm done for now, for today. But I am going to give you a pick, but I'm switching to hockey. And when I'm 0-2-1 in the season, it's like a slump buster. And the best I can do here for a slump buster is I go Vancouver Canucks. Why? Because the Canucks are actually not favored. They're playing in Florida against the Florida Panthers. It's a game I'm going to watch. So therefore, gulp, right? I love that, that under, under screen on YouTube right now. Coca just put gulp going to the NHL. That is a big gulp because this is a one-star bet. This is only for the desperate addicts who are listening. If you have to have action and you're going to watch a game, fine. Watch the hockey game. Take a break from the NBA. Canucks over Panthers. Okay, so before the show ends, I got to go back to a, uh, a pretty serious topic. And uh, I spent a lot of time yesterday talking about the Rooney Rule. And uh, it may have been two days ago, yesterday or two days ago, talking about the Rooney Rule and the Selig Rule in baseball. We posted a video on the Twitter at David P. Sampson, and we were talking about the fact that minority coaches are not being hired in the NFL. There were tons of openings this offseason, and other than Ron Rivera, who's Hispanic, there have been no black coaches hired. We talked about the fact that Chris Greer, uh, the Dolphins, uh, the only black GM, and I talked about the Rooney Rule and the Selig Rule, and I talked about the fact that I told you, I gave you insight. I gave you truth. I gave you honesty. I told you that I don't pay attention to the Rooney Rule or the Selig Rule. And I told you because color doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is winning and money. Not in that order. And I got called out. And I got called out by people who said, you're white. I don't want you talking about the Rooney Rule. Leave that to Stephen A. Smith. Leave it to any of the African-American, black, brown, anybody of color. Let them talk about how it feels. You don't know how it feels. I want to address you right now. You're right. I'm Caucasian. I'm privileged and I'm white. I don't know how it feels. But that was not my point. And that's not what I'm talking about. I was talking to you about what goes on in sports and what we try to do. And when we're trying to make a playing field level and it's not, and you all complain that it's not, I'm giving you the reason why it's not. And it doesn't matter that I'm white. It doesn't matter that I'm short, tall, fat, skinny, white, brown, black, purple. What matters is I spent 18 years in Major League Baseball, and I know exactly what goes on in the mind of an owner. I don't speculate. I know it. I've heard it directly from them. I know what goes on with presidents. I know how to interview. I know what goes on during interviews. Yet I'm being called out because I'm saying that the interviews aren't fair. Yes, you're damn right they're not fair because we know who we're going to hire. 
That doesn't mean we're not hiring a minority. Take a look at my record. Take a look at all of the minorities, women who I hired, not because they were women and minorities, because they were the best person for the job that needed to get done. I am extremely qualified to discuss this. And what I took offense to is the rhetoric that is spewed that is solely race-related. Let's use our ears a little more and not our eyes. Let's use our ears to listen to what's being said, and let's give the benefit of the doubt to the person who's doing the talking before we do the railroading. Let's understand what the point is, why the point's being made. Let's not become a headline society, and that's where we are. You read a headline, you go right to the criticism. It made me upset and I wanted to address it, I am going to continue on this show. As we today, this is our 50th episode. We celebrated 50 episodes here in the CBS studios. We had 50 cupcakes from a place called Coca Dots. Great cupcakes. I'm on a bit of a sugar high right now. I had one. I'm going to have another. 50 episodes is just the beginning. But what we promise you every time is we are going to decode what's happening in the world of business, sports. We're going to review movies. We're going to talk TV shows. We're going to talk entertainment. We may even talk Harry and Meghan and what they did. But what I do know is every single time I am honored to be in front of this, I'm going to give you a wait to see. I'm going to give you a pick. I'm going to show you want to talk to Samson. I'm going to do it all for you. My wait to see today Cleveland Browns, last coaching vacancy, book it. They will not hire a minority. There is so much pressure on the Browns right now to hire a minority coach. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because the owner has them will be able to say to Goodell, we are hiring the person we want to hire who is best for the team. Hey, Roger, I got big news for you, is what Haslam says. This is business. This is nothing personal. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.